by Riverside. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Backside Ground Balls podcast. Super excited for the episode today that we're going to have a great conversation with a great guest. But first, I want to say a big thank you to our sponsor, Torasani and Powers TV Hanging Business. Tor, how's the TV hanging business since I walked away? I know I, le- I left you literally hanging with <laughs> without a replacement. So how's it going with that? Well, it's uh, it's going really well. We uh, we did purchase two additional TVs this fall, and uh, it, it wasn't part of the initial job description for for Dylan Tice when he walked in after you, but uh, but he stepped in nicely. He's uh, he's excellent at the TV hanging, so we're rolling right along. Didn't skip a beat. That that's phenomenal. That's the most important part, right there. Is like the the little details. If if I ever last left a lasting impact, every time you see the TV in your office, it's gonna be you're gonna remember the the struggles, the highs and the lows of hanging that thing, and and how long it took for us to get that thing up. But obviously, we're super excited to have you on and talk about a, a multitude of things. For people that don't know, I worked for you for a year at Arcadia last year. Um, it was a phenomenal year. We, we can definitely talk about what that year was and obviously laid the foundation to what I'm sure you believe. And I think a lot of people across division three b- baseball believe could be a national championship contender. Um, a lot of talent coming back from the team last year, but we'll get into that. First thing that we do want to talk about is you just spent a week, correct? Correct. Yep. In the Dominican Republic, um, it was a really awesome experience for for the guys as well as for the coaching staff and and learning and getting to see that type of baseball. So, kind of go into what what that was for. Obviously, the player development side for your guys, but what was the bigger mission and the bigger picture, and why you wanted to do that and and kind of take Arcadia baseball overseas? Yeah, definitely. So. Um... I had actually gone one time before after in, uh, in 2018 and uh, from a baseball standpoint and with a company called Planet Baseball, um, which was a company that took a, a groups of American kids overseas to basically use baseball as a way to, you know, provide some perspective and, and uh, allow them to play in other countries and things like that. And, and my first time down there was super eye opening from everything, the way that the way folks live in the Dominican Republic, uh, the way they train baseball. Um, the talent pool down there, just everything was just a super eye-opening experience. And when I was down there the first time, I, I kind of had it as a pipe dream in my head of one day I'd love to take my my team down and, and be able to see all this stuff. And, you know, lo and behold, a few years later, we were able to pull it off and and we got down there. And and, uh, and so my, my buddy, Jay Quinn, that is the owner of Planet Baseball, now lives in Las Terrenas, Dominican Republic and runs what's called the Baseball Island Foundation, which I'll get into a little bit later. But we went down and saw him for the week and, and played four games and traveled the island some and did some uh, community service and and uh, just really wanted to get our guys down there and just kind of see a different way of life and, and a different way of baseball life uh, in particular. So it was an awesome experience from start to finish. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and obviously the 
the bigger mission of of why you guys went down there is is so important. But first, obviously the the on field stuff, right? So you guys obviously have a pretty big roster at Arcadia. What what was that experience like? Not only for the returning guys to be able to get down there and play really talented players, but also the new guys and f- from a coaching standpoint to be able to get eyes on on guys playing against really good competition and kind of see what when the lights go on, which guys shine and which guys kind of struggle. Yeah, no, I mean, these trips are, this trip has proved invaluable in a lot of ways. So this is a, what they call an international foreign tour. And and with the NCAA, you can do this once every three years. And and, uh, when you do it, they allow you to practice for 10 days leading up to the trip. Um, They allow you to play as many games as as you want on the trip. And, and uh, so it's a really big advantage from a preseason standpoint. And, you know, like you mentioned, we do a bigger roster. So we split the squads. We had sort of a younger squad and we had kind of most of our returners on the other team. And so every, you know, we were able to play two games a day basically at the same time and, and allow guys to get a lot of reps and innings on the mound and at bats. And, and it, it was a huge, uh, it's a huge advantage for us to have a, a little bit better background on each guy um, prior to heading into this season. So, um, you know, obviously it's a little early for pitchers to be ramping up too much. So we guys were generally capped at an inning or two innings, depending on, on pitch counts and things like that. But um, we really got to see some guys that, that shine really well down there and, and were a little bit of surprises from the fall and got, and guys that had gotten better. So, and, and then the competition we played was just, was just unbelievable. I mean, we faced the major leaguer, we faced a couple guys on 40 man rosters. We faced uh, a couple of younger guys that were signed by Dominican teams and uh, we even faced the guy that got signed by the Chicago White Sox on the spot after he pitched against us. So we uh, we got to see the gamut down there, and it was just an awesome uh, baseball experience for our players. That's phenomenal, and, and it, it, it's funny that you bring it up. I'm sure every guy that struggled down there is a guy I recruited, and every guy that did well is a guy that you recruited. I mean, I got I, I'm not in the college game anymore, so I have no problem taking those taking those names that struggled against that better competition, but. You mentioned the competition down there, and and obviously it's the gamut. And and you talk about how important baseball is to that community. What's a what's their day to day baseball player development look like? And b like how good is it compared to what we see in the states? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it, it's ironic that you know that tiny island of I don't want to get it wrong. I think it's two and a half million people. Um, you know, 40% of, of professional baseball comes from the Dominican Republic, 40% of the players from single A all the way through the major leagues. So, you know, that's a huge chunk of the talent pool coming from a, a tiny country. And so because of that, you know, the, the, especially the young males, um, you know, that's, that's their dream as a little kid is to, uh, you know, play in the play in professional baseball. And a lot of people talk about that. The dream is to get off the Island, and uh, that's certainly a part of it. But what they really want is to get off the island to, to be able to make some money and be able to provide for their family so that they can come back a lot of times and help their communities and, and be able to be, um, you know, sort of a role model for, for the, the next generation of young kids down there. So like that whole that whole sort of model is uh, is really interesting because. That being said, the educate education kind of takes a back seat for males in the Dominican Republic, which is the tough part. Um, because it's still such a small percentage of kids that actually make it all the way to the major leagues, even from the DR. It's about 2% of kids that get signed actually, you know, one day make it to the major leagues and, and actually make somewhat significant money. So, 
um, you know, with education not being as important, a lot of these kids don't have a lot to fall back on if they don't make it. But, you know, day to day, it's an interesting scenario. So most of these kids are involved in, in baseball academies down there. And the bulk of their day is spent training for baseball. So most of them don't go to school until the afternoon around three o'clock. So in the morning they get up most of the time they're at the gym. Um, first thing in the morning, uh, they got some breakfast and then they're at the field from, you know, basically 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., you know, training for baseball. And, you know, when I say at the field, like the, the field we were at in Las Terrenas, there were four academies training on one field. And, uh, you know, yeah, there's so they're not always they don't always have the resources that the kids in the States have where you show up at a practice and you're the only team on the field. I mean, there's a, an academy in dead center. There's an academy working out on the infield. There's one in left the left field corner. There's one in the right field corner. You know, there might be a couple kids in the batting cage down the line, but I mean, these guys are not, they're, they're using what they have to, uh, to train and get better. And it's often not a lot of space or fancy equipment. So I think for our guys standpoint, that was cool to see because we have a lot of really good facilities here at Arcadia. We're super fortunate. And, uh, I think even coming back here, our players were, um, that was one thing they took home with them of, of how little you need to, to be prepared to be a good baseball player. So Anyway, I'm getting off topic a little bit, but, you know, they train baseball, you know, basically till one o'clock, they get some lunch and they go to school from, from three o'clock to six o'clock. And, you know, as I describe this to people, like I, I basically tell them like, that's almost the exact opposite of what happens in the States, right? A kid wakes up in the morning, uh, he goes to school from 9am to 3pm and then, you know, sits in a, sits in a chair with a shoulder slump forward and eating honey buns in the cafeteria to, uh, to three o'clock comes and then they go to baseball from three to six. And so, you know, they're almost the Dominican kids are almost spending the exact, you know, basically 100 percent more time on baseball than they are in, in the States currently. And so, you know, that being said, there's positives and negatives. Certainly, they're very good baseball players and and uh, and they do have a shot to sign professionally at 16 down there, which is interesting. And, and again, we can talk about that process to it in a little bit. But um, but at the same time, they, they let, if they don't make it in baseball, they, they lack some skills that otherwise they would probably need to, to help them throughout life. Yeah. It's my parents took a vacation to the Dominican Republic, uh, maybe a year ago, maybe two. Um, and their Uber driver, Uber taxi, I don't know exactly what it was. He was signed by the Cubs. Mm-hmm. And he ended up not making it, and he came back to the island, and that's what he was bringing. He actually, <laughs> they have no. My dad didn't have cell service. His phone ends up dying. He gets in the car with this taxi driver. The guy goes, "You want me to take you to my town?" And my dad, being the ever adventurous guy, was like, "Sure." So my mom can't get a hold of my dad, who's just <laughs> in this town of the Dominican Republic, eating at this restaurant, hanging out with this guy, and. It was a really cool story because he came back and obviously he, at the time, I, I think I might've been at Arcadia. If not, I was at Goldie Beacom and he kind of lent a lens of like what that looked like for just the town. He said, baseball is king there. Baseball is everything. They, they literally grow up with the intention of playing professional baseball. And if you don't, you know, you're kind of, ha- for lack of a better term, handcuffed, right? You know, yeah. you're kind of in a position where it's either taxi driver or, you know, make it and, and make yeah. it in America. But you know, you mentioned back to the resources standpoint, I did want to touch on that. And, you know, we always talk, it's always so funny because the age old adage is like at the division three schools, we not really cry poor, but like compared to what the division one schools have, you 
have all the resources in the world. And then, you know, we have our hitting rap soto and our pitching rap soto, and, and that's pretty much it in terms of technology. But then you go to the Dominican Republic and your rap sotos seem like diamonds at that point. What was the player development like there? How did they maximize their resources on those fields? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think it, it's a little bit academy to academy too. There certainly is a hierarchy of, you know, those, the academies down there as well. I mean, we played one day uh, at the Atlanta, Bra- at the former Atlanta Braves Dominican Academy um, down there. All 30 major league teams have an academy in the Dominican Republic and, and they have invested um, major league baseball and their, and the teams have invested a lot of money down there, you know, for obvious reasons. And so uh, many of them have built new academies in the last, uh, you know, five to 10 years. So some of their older academies are now being uh, used by, um, you know, the local academies that are developing the players to be signed. So if, you, if you're good enough to get to one of those places, you might have a little bit better resources. Like the field we played on there was very similar to a field we'd play on up here, particularly like in, in Florida, like our Florida fields that we go play at. It was very nice, well manicured, all that stuff. You know, and we got down to uh, Santo Domingo and Las Terrenas and, and we're basically playing sandlot ball. I mean, no dirt on the infield at one place, all dirt on the infield at the other place. It was, it was, the infield was drug um, by a guy on a dirt bike with a piece of chain link <laughs> fence attached to the back of it. And I'll be darned if that thing wasn't perfectly flat and smooth by the time we were ready to play. So, uh, you know, resource wise, um, you know, there's just not a lot there. And, uh, and, and so it's a very organic style of, of training for baseball. So they do a ton of throwing every day. Not every place has a batting cage. So, you know, as we're playing kids that are, we played kids that are 16 to 20, 21 years old for the most part down there. I mean, the arm strength of every kid positionally and obviously on the mound is just unbelievable. I mean, you bear, you, you don't see a kid with a poor arm in the Dominican Republic. And, and as you're walking around the fields, like, and watching these little kids play, like if they have a ball, they can play catch. Right. So um, if they have a glove, that's kind of a bonus. Gloves are sort of a gloves are definitely uh, a, a premier asset down there, but uh, for little guys in certain neighborhoods, but I mean, they throw every single day, um, you know, almost all day, I would say. And so arms are really good. And, you know, from an offensive standpoint, like they got to get creative. You see guys down there with, um, with wood bats or even with sort of like your stick ball scenario and, Coaches are flipping bottle caps from the top of five gallon water jugs, you know, to them and they're hitting those or sunflower seeds, you know, and they're, and they're kind of working hand-eye coordination that way. You know, the field we were at did have a, a pretty legitimate batting cage set up with a good L screen. And so guys were able to, to, uh, to hit in the cage there, but even that's not really fancy. You're not seeing a lot of fancy drills. You're not seeing a lot of implements in terms of weighted bats or short bats or long bats or things like that. I mean, Guys are taking regular bats into the cage and and just kind of honing their craft, um, you know, that way. So the the development is definitely in terms of technology and and equipment is definitely. I, I compared it to like Rocky Four, where uh, you know where the Russian mm-hmm. has all the technology and all the yep. equipment, and and Rocky is in Siberia and uh, you know training in the winter cold and and climbing mountains and things like that. So you know, from a strength and conditioning standpoint, it's kind of the same way. They use their resources. So, you know, there's the town we were in. It was beach on one side and mountain on the other. So some mornings they do a beach workout where they're doing a bunch of agilities and stuff in the sand and 
And uh, it's tough. I mean, it, I've done it once before. And, and, you know, as much as we try to go to the gym every day up here, when you, when you do that kind of stuff and you don't do it often, I mean, it's pretty hard and those kids make it look easy. And then um, as a team, we ran this huge mountain pass uh, in Las Terrenas and, and uh, it's kind of like a four switchback sort of mountain pass. And those guys do all sorts of drills and, and conditioning and sort of strength training up that mountain, you know, that's sort of baseball related. So if they can find some access to a weight room where they can find, a t- like we walked into the field the one day and guys are swinging sledgehammers at a big old truck tire. You know, it's those types of things that you're seeing, which is just complete throwback to, you know, to a different era, which is cool. That's great. And for, for the backside ground balls bingo card, you had Rocky reference from a Philly guy. Check it off. That That's one of them. Knew that one was coming. But no, I mean, it, it's amazing to see how they maximize their resources and just how little you need to really be successful. I mean, obviously you said they make up 40% of from A ball to the major leagues in a island that's about the size of some states in America and about have the, the size of people in America. And it's amazing to kind of hear that it is possible to, to develop talent and to maximize talent in that window of not having everything. And you mentioned the academies and obviously the major leagues have invested so much because if you're not investing down there, 40% of baseball and professionally in America is from down there. What is the process like of the guys that do get signed with the trainers? How is that whole process look like and and what did you learn while you were there that that probably people here don't completely understand definitely um i'm gonna fact check myself first so i just looked it up but the population of the dominican republic is 11 million not two and a half so i was way off there but that's compared to the united states 331 million yeah so you know just a huge you know discrepancy in the number of people and and the amount of of baseball players that come from from there so um hopefully folks listened long enough to this episode to to get the real information but um yeah that that pro the, the process to sign down there and kind of the way it works is uh interesting it's it can be even sad to it to a degree and and uh but obviously at the same time like provides the possible opportunity for these guys to make it so I'll try to be as succinct as possible, but you know, they Dominican players and any international prospect outside of the uh, the United States and Puerto Rico, um, they can sign at 16 years old. And so the way that it generally works is, um, you know, like anything else, folks are trying to get ahead. And, and so a lot of these agreements are being made prior to these prospects being 16. And, um, you know, I mentioned these academies, before and, and depending on where, where guys are from down there, you know, they may start out at eight, nine, 10 years old at a local academy, sort of like I described practicing on a, on a quarter of a field somewhere in a corner. And, and uh, you know, as they start to develop um, you know, a lot of times they're trying to get towards one of the bigger cities. So Santo Domingo, um, San Pedro de Macariz, which I'm sure a lot of people have heard of. There's a lot of, you know, Robinson Cano's hometown and, and, uh, and many others, but, um, you know, they're trying to get to the academies that are sort of like the ones I talked about at the old Atlanta Braves complex. Um, when this happens, essentially these players are being bought and sold by the train, by the trainers and, and the, and the word for trainer down there that they use is Buscone. So the Buscones are, um, basically selling, you know, players to different academies and, um, these players and families are signing contracts with the Buscones that, 
that they are going to be taking a percentage of their signing bonus when they sign. So uh, down there, a lot of times it can end up being 30, 40, or 50% of a signing bonus that, that the Buscones are taking from the player um, once they sign. And, you know, that can be an exchange for housing them and feeding them and, and uh, you know, obviously the baseball training and things like that. But, when, you know, when I talk about housing and feeding, I mean, we saw firsthand the situation down there, um, you know, at the one Academy and believe me, it is no Ritz Carlton. It's a, it's a a very, it's a sad, a little bit of a sad state of how these kids live. And, and even if they are at one of the quote unquote better academies and, you know, and so families really have no choice, but to accept these, these bad deals for themselves because they don't really have much else a lot of time. So the opportunity to make 30, 40 or 50% of, of a $700,000 signing bonus is, they're going to take that opportunity because they don't have really much else to lean back on. So once, um, you know, once they turn 16 and this is kind of a timely conversation because the international signing window just opened, I believe this past Sunday, um, you know, they're able to sign and, and uh, if they're good enough. And, and so, you know, you saw around major league baseball just this past week, a ton of guys did sign contracts and, you know, at that point um, those, those kids do go to the major league academies that are in the Dominican Republic. So, you know, if a guy signs with the Phillies, the Phillies have their own academy. They send all their prospects to at 16, 17. And, and at that point, there, there are some educational requirements and, uh, and some things that the players go through in terms of learning English. And, and they get taught a little financial literacy and things like that, as well as, you know, as well as obviously the baseball development. Um, you know, and generally speaking, by the time they turn 18, the hope is that they get a plane ticket to the United States and, and can start their path you know, through rookie ball and, and up the ladder, you know, to the major leagues. And, um, you know, so that's kind of the best case scenario for those kids is sign, go to, go to an academy on the Island, get sent to the States, make it big and, and hopefully be able to come back at some point and provide for their community and their family. But, you know, like I said, that's, that's the 2%, the other 98%, once they don't get that plane ticket to the United States, you know, they're back home in their towns and villages without much education and, and, uh, and it's a kind of a tough path from, for them um, from then on out. And so, you know, for us going down to see the baseball uh, Island foundation, my, uh, Jay is trying to, to change that paradigm and, and try to marry up education and baseball together to, so that kids down there do have a chance if they don't, you know, make it professionally. And so his, his uh, you know, his model is that in order to be a part of his foundation, number one, it's completely free for the kids to be part of. So their families are not paying anything, which they do with some of the other academies. Um, but they must attend public school and they then they must attend uh, English classes that the Baseball Island Foundation runs um, every Wednesday night down there. So they have to attend those two things to be able to uh, train at the foundation um, for free. And at that point, um, Jay's goal is to be able to, to uh, you know, get them to a point where they can come to America to go to college if they don't make it. Uh, you know, in professional baseball right away. So he sent two kids uh, up here to, he's just getting started. He's about the end of his second year kind of running this foundation, but he just sent two kids to uh, junior colleges in Oklahoma uh, this year. And he has eight more kids lined up, ready to go to school uh, next fall uh, in the States as well. Uh, and his thing is he doesn't take any cut of their signing bonus if they do sign professionally. And, uh, you know, since it is free and it is a nonprofit and it is a foundation, I mean, he's running this whole thing based off of donations and he does have some, uh, he's getting some traction here to try to shift this paradigm completely in that country to 
help provide for these kids if they don't make it. You know, Major League Baseball is dipping their toes in the sand a little bit for him, and, and he's got some other big backers that uh, of name brand people and stuff. So pretty uh, pretty cool scenario that he's got going on, but just the whole process from start to finish is uh, for these kids is just wild and wildly different than it is in the States. Yeah, and the the bigger mission of what what Jay's doing down there is huge, and hopefully, I mean, I know we don't have a huge platform, but hopefully, we can bring awareness by you know bringing you on and, and talking about your experiences to help that grow, even if it's just a little bit, even if it's a donation here and there. And part of the story that I kind of left out because I kind of knew which direction we were going of my when my dad was in the Dominican Republic is the player that my dad was driving around in the taxi with. When he got signed with the Chicago Cubs, he took a drug test. He came up positive for PEDs. This was obviously, this dude was now 30, so now there's different ways. But the trainers had basically been giving him, quote unquote, supplements that were testosterone boosters. And the Cubs cut bait right away. And the kid was 17 with no future and and nothing else to do because everything was relied on baseball. And that's how much these trainers care about their image and pushing their guys and getting their cut and all these selfish actions that, and these kids don't know better. They don't know the difference between a supplement and steroids. They don't know the difference between, you know, really what they're eating and and they don't have the education and, and the formal backing of somebody they trust. Like they're putting their whole lives in these trainers hands to say, Hey, I'll help you get to America and get to professional baseball so that you can feed your family so that you can help your community. And it's really impressive to hear what Jay's doing. And obviously you said he's new. How many guys have, has he gotten into pro ball? Obviously I think the college standpoint, that's more impressive. I I think the numbers of seeing guys go to college, that's going to be the one number that I think he could, he should and can hang his hat on. But how's the traction with professional organizations going? Obviously you mentioned one guy that got signed while you guys were down there. Yeah. So, um, you know, he, he had started out with about 20 kids and, um, he's up to, to, uh, he's basically doubled that. He's around 40, 40 players in the program. Now, majority are pitchers. Uh, that seems to be the way it goes down there in the, in the Dominican Republic. I mean, obviously there's some great position players that come out of there too, but as I talked about, the one thing that a lot of those kids can do on a daily basis is throw. So a lot of them get moved to, if they show a good arm, they get moved to the mound pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, so the majority of his guys are, are pitchers. Um, he has had two guys sign professional contracts um, in the last couple of years. The, ki- the, uh, the young man that signed the day that we were down there, it was actually not one of his uh, foundation players. He was part okay. of another academy. Um, but that was an interesting story. He came out to throw the second inning. We kind of got a heads up that the Chicago White Sox were there, particularly to see him that day. And they came out and videoed his warm-up pitches. Uh, he threw an inning against us. He was 17 years old. He was every bit of 92 to 95 with a pretty good slider. And, uh, you know, he came back out, uh, threw a few more p- kind of warm-up bullpen-type pitches before the top of the third, and then uh, he was done. And literally by the end of the fourth inning, they had announced on the loudspeaker that he had signed with the White Sox behind the dugout. So, um, you know, our team, the the team of Dominican kids we were playing, like everybody just kind of stopped, and it was obviously a really cool moment you know, for that guy. We found out later that he was one of the top, his name's Luis Reyes. He was one of the top international um, right-handed pitchers on the market. He signed for $700,000 plus a school bonus, um, you know, if he does want to go back to school. So yeah, really cool, really cool. But yeah, Jay, you know, Jay, I think as they go along here, um, 
they're doing some really cool stuff from a pitching standpoint. Our pitching coach, Jimmy Goulden, has gone down on his own once and stayed down there for a couple days after our trip and is helping kind of implement some more, we'll call it some more Americanized pitching training down there um, with their pitching coach, Nick Debra. Um, and Nick, uh, Nick's a Dominican, uh, you know, native himself. And he actually lives right across the street from the field where they train. And he pitched uh, for five years in the States um, with the New York Mets organization and, and just is a sponge from a pitching standpoint and just a super dynamic personality and awesome role model for those kids. So, um, you know, they're, they're really doing a lot of good work um, in trying to prepare those guys for pro baseball or college baseball, depending on which way the route, the route takes them. So really, really cool. Yeah, that that's awesome. And, and it's, it's such a great to hear, right? Like, cause they need positive influences down there. Obviously it's, it's, I mean, I think at least people tied into what the baseball community is that pay attention to international signings. They kind of know how it goes down there. There's a lot of people that are in the MLB specifically that are trying to push change, whether it be an international draft, whether it be not being able to agree to contracts until that date. There's so many things trying to, trying to go put, be put into play by especially the MLB players association. Um, but hopefully we'll start to see change. I think this is a necessary step to kind of get to where, the MLB would like to be and, and actually the well-being of the kids and, and the well-being of the athletes so that they can at least have long-term development that pays off in life outside of baseball. And, and it's really awesome to see that that obviously you guys were a part of it and obviously what Jay's doing down there with the foundation. Hopefully we can check in in three years when, when you guys head back down there and it, it's completely different animal and we're talking about a real empire of of just Dominican baseball down there, which I know is what his hope is. And you mentioned about the talent that you guys face. We'll kind of get into more of what that meant for your team and and everything of that nature. And obviously you're not going to see many guys that are signing for 700,000 this coming year. How, how much of an impact is that specifically for, for your offensive guys to kind of see that arm? And now when you roll out the gloves in February, like how's that going to impact the group? Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest, they, our guys surprised me with how well we handled what we saw down there, especially for, you know, this early in the season. We didn't take any live at-bats before we left. Um, you know, we, we were hitting in our cages in our new indoor facility. And, and uh, you know, so um, compliments to you for, for building the foundation last year and, and obviously Coach Tice keeping it moving forward. And, and uh, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the foundation of our offense is kind of set with, and we do have an older roster, which helps these guys aren't afraid of much, but um, you know, we got down there and uh, the first, the first day was, we didn't, we faced a couple of guys that were pretty premier guys. We played more of like a Dominican showcase team where, where this, this, another, another pretty neat organization called dream big um, who's essentially when Jay's players at the foundation, are ready to go to college. Jay sends them to a couple showcases with dream big, um, which has a a team full of Dominican players that most of them are pretty good with English and, and are ready to go to college in the States. And then schools come down and watch dream big play and, and, you know, can, can sign and recruit guys out of there. So we played them. So it wasn't as many pro prospects, at least young pro prospects. Um, But once we got to Las Terrenas, man, and we started to play, play the guys that were the pro prospects or even, even already signed. I mean, I, like I said to you before the call, I, I don't think we saw a fastball below 90 miles an hour the entire week. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and so the point we kind of made on the way out of town was like, we're not going to really be, I don't think we're going to really be afraid of anything we see, you know, this spring. We've kind of probably seen the hardest 
velocity fastball and, and maybe even the best breaking ball that we're going to see, um, you know, coming out of uh, out of this trip. So hopefully we can keep that momentum going and, and moving forward. So it was interesting. The very last inning of the trip, we were uh, we were down eight four. And there was a double A player from the White Sox that threw the last inning, really awesome guy, had been in the States for a little while, also spoke pretty good English and talked to our team. And like, you know, he had kind of, he warmed up, he warmed up in the bullpen with one of our catchers and said, ah, you know, I'm kind of like early in the season, I'm just going to probably be 70, 75%, you know, which was still 92, 93. And we came out and went triple, single and scored a run. And uh, Nick Bontempo came up to, to, uh, as the next hitter and, you know, 92, 93 quickly turned into 97, 98 after he was not too happy giving up a couple hits and, and, uh, tempo swung through a fastball and just turned to our dugout with his jaw wide open. Like, Oh my gosh, I don't think I've ever seen anything that hard in my life. And, uh, you know, so that, that was, that was a neat moment kind of to finish up the trip and we made a run at him and ended up losing eight, seven, not that the score of the game mattered, but it was just still cool to see our guys put an inning together, you know, against a guy in double a, um, but yeah, the first game down there that we played in Las Terrenas, I think we punched out 15 times against, uh, you know, some pretty good arms and like it was an adjustment. And then those next couple days, we really, uh, we really honed it in well and you could kind of see some quick improvement. So, like I said, I think in terms of what this means for us baseball wise going into the 2023 season, like there is literally nothing that could replace that experience that could help us get ready. If I learned anything in my year in Glenside, Pennsylvania, it's that would only happen to Nick Bontempo. Like if there's, if there's anything I learned, like out of everybody on the team to have to step up to the plate in that situation, like that would only happen to him. But um, it is credit. No. He did fly out the center and he got a good swing on it. So he eventually later in the at bat. So he, he, uh, he didn't cower. That's for sure. That's, that's awesome. And you yeah. love to hear that. And, you mentioned the 2023 squad, and, and one of the things that always fascinates me, and it's probably going to be the one thing I wish I was a fly on the wall to be this year, is how do you handle expectations coming off of, obviously, the pinnacle year of, I mean, I don't think it would be a stretch to say your coaching career. Time at Arcadia, obviously, you had regional teams, but to you know host a regional and to do all the things that that we accomplished as a group i think the hardest thing is not to do that when you're sneaking up on everybody right like you sneak up on people even late in the year you're still sne- uh, it's still the kind of feisty arcadia team that they've always been but then you start to kick people's teeth in quite frankly now you're going to play 40 games over the next calendar year the next 6 months that every single team whether it's a Tuesday a Wednesday a Saturday a Friday is going to probably bring their best bullpen arm they're probably going to bring their best lineup everybody's going to be giving it your all how do you expect to handle that and how do you stop the group from you know eating the rat poison of everybody telling you how good you are yeah, it's something, you know, we just had our first team meeting for the spring semester um, with everybody, you know, this past Tuesday. And it's definitely something that we that we touched on. And um, I think with a different group, I would probably be more uh, anxious about that than I currently am. I do think we have really good upperclassmen leadership that sort of understand what it's going to take for us to to, you know, put together the type of season that we want to. So honestly, we boiled it down to two things. And, you know, we said, number one, we want our culture to be better than last year. And that's going to be difficult because we had a really good culture last year. And as you know, you know, we talk a lot about effort, attitude, toughness, and acceptance as being sort of our four main 
core values. And we have some things that we talk about amongst those topics that we try to improve on. And so, you know, that's one area that we're going to continue to focus on. And then the other areas we want to have more fun than we did last year, which is going to also going to be a tough thing to do <laughs> as, you, as you can see you shaking your head, you know, because um, I think the, the issue becomes, as you're alluding to, is like when you start to put pressure on yourself and you start to become more concerned with the results than, than the way you're going about your business. That's when, that's when, you know, you can start to not handle the adversity in the right way. And, and, you know, if you do lose some games, things can kind of pile up on you and start heading in the wrong direction. But if we can focus on our culture and focus on our, our enjoying being together and playing the game, that has nothing to do with winning and losing. That has everything to do with ourselves and kind of how we're going about our business. I think that's going to be the way that we can kind of handle those expectations. Um, you know, and, and, and we also added some, I think we added some pieces, you know, from last year to help with some of the losses to guys like Zach Sakelik and Nick Opelkowski and Connor Cheeseman and Owen Margolis. I think we're, you know, we're in a spot where we can kind of pick up from where we left off. So that's the other thing we reminded them is like, hey, this is a new team. This is a new year. We have to write our own chapter in this story. And, and uh, certainly we want to ride the wave of momentum that we created last year, but we're starting at the bottom of the mountain and we got to, we got to climb back up. So these guys are ready. I think they want everybody's best. Like, I don't think we're looking for, they're not looking for the easy way out. They want the best bullpen arm. They want the best arm, you know, that, that a team can throw at us. And, and, um, and again, this to, to, not to go backwards, but this Dominican trip, I think was even more important. It was the perfect time to do this trip as the, as the once in three years with this team. So, yeah, I, I completely agree when you're talking about the talent you guys faced and probably a lot of adversity before guys usually even pick up a bat in the spring. Um, that's, that's huge. And one of the things that you mentioned multiple times there is culture. I mentioned on this podcast several times that the culture at Arcadia was built, the foundation was laid, the leadership and everything from that nature. And one of the things, and this is probably the best compliment you'll ever get from me, because I'm, I'm very hard on people, especially when it comes to this standpoint, is the first team meeting that I sat in and, and to hear you stand in front of the team and talk about what I would deem the right things, right? Like I was, I was as engaged as any guy on the team because I was new, you know, and, and when you're working with people, you're always playing that tug of war of trying to feel out what life is going to be like working with or for somebody. Right. And I remember sitting in that first team meeting and just being fully engaged into what you were preaching and understanding that what Arcadia baseball stands for is what I believe I stood for. Right. And why I felt like it was going to be such a successful year outside of talent. I don't even think we'd stepped on the field. I could tell how engaged the group was. I can tell just how good the guys were bumping into them on campus, bumping into them at the skip, all those things like that kind of go into like how that's evolved. I mean, we don't have to get into the, what Arcadia was when you took over. That is a whole nother bag of worms, but how you've evolved the culture to be, whereas people can walk in and know nothing about the program and walk away and be as impressed as anyway. Cause I've never seen anything like it where, where it's from top bottom and it's player led and, and everything of that nature. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate that. Uh, means a lot. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the win, the wins and losses are what they are. And we've been fortunate to have some really talented players, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm more proud of just like what you mentioned just just there in terms of, uh, you know, our reputation around campus and around the conference and, and I think even around the country at this point and and how we how we go about our business. So, I mean, it's certainly something that's been it's certainly something that's evolved over the years. You know, from my seat, I, it sounds corny, but I kind of look at our culture as like a living, growing organism. So, um, you know, it's like a plant, you know, it needs water every day. It needs sunlight. 
it needs, uh, you know, nutrients to grow in and things like that. And so our guy, I try to constantly give our guys a dose of their, their daily vitamin of culture, um, whether it be through our mental minutes, whether it be through, you know, quick conversations with guys, you know, during stretching at practice or, you know, whatever the case may be. And, and it's just something that you can never, once you stop talking about it and stop trying to preach it is when it's going to start to die. And, uh, you know, so that's something that, that we try to really continue. I, I really owe a lot of credit to Kyle Lindsay, who, who was uh, your predecessor is the top assistant here, um, you know, a couple years ago. And uh, he's now the head coach at our sinus college. Um, and, you know, he came to us from Misericordia and people are probably like, wow, I can't believe coach is talking about Misericordia on, uh, on a podcast. But, you know, I'm a big believer that success leaves clues. And, and Kyle played there and coached there. And, and uh, you know, as much as we're rivals now, like I really respect what Pete Egbert has done with that program. And you can you could always feel their culture, you know, when you played them, um, you know, it, that it was very uh, – put together. They paid attention to the details. They always outplayed their talent level, um, you know, and, and all those things that, that I wanted to, there's some things they do that I don't like, but the, the things that I did like, um, you know, I certainly wanted to steal for lack of a better word. And so when Kyle came here, we really hammered down on what we wanted this program to be about. And, and uh, you know, we, the effort attitude toughness thing ha- has been around since 2017, Uh, when I got here and created that, but we've really took a deeper dive in terms of like our core values, self-evaluations once a month and the way we keep our locker room and each player's lockers and just all of these detail oriented things that have kind of trickled down, I think to, uh, to the players. But I do think that first team meeting and I've basically used the first, the essentially same first team meeting for (laughs) the last seven years, you know, it does kind of set the stage of like what the expectations are, how we want to behave around campus, what, what the academic expectations are. And, and I'll just leave it with this. I think the one really cool thing, and, and you know from, from the thousands of tours that we did last year with recruits, is you know we really press upon our guys that to be welcoming you know, with, with visitors when they're here. And so you know, if we're walking a recruit around campus, you're going to have four or five, six guys come up and introduce themselves and say hi and, and talk to the parents and the player. And, you know, it, it's not fake. Like those guys really, that's how they are. And, and then when they get together, it's kind of the same thing. And like you mentioned too, we're just really fortunate that our older guys have bought into what we talk about um, because they do have to give up a lot of themselves in this program. It's not all about uh, an individual. It's, it's about the group and, and our older guys have just really done a great job of embodying that, which is nice for me because I can now sit back and, and watch a player led program. And kind of now I can really spend my time focusing on, the things that get us better. Yeah. And it, it's so crazy because you mentioned that, and I'm sure it was not always this way, but I felt like there were times last year where me and you could just sit in our office and the whole coaching staff could just sit back and, and guys like Nick Opelkowski, guys like Alex Madera, guys like Zach Sakelik and Owen Margolis and all these guys would just take care of business, right? Like you never came out to the field and stuff wasn't being done to set up for practice. And you never came out and guys weren't getting their work. And I remember there was a, we hit a lull offensively through the year and you came to me on Monday and you said, I'm not worried. And I was like, why? And he said, 18 guys are here hitting at one o'clock, right? Like that's the culture that was built. And obviously you mentioned that it was laid by Kyle, the discipline, the little things, all those things like that. And it got to the point now where you're able to just take that, let guys like your senior class run it and just see, oversee everything. And you're just the kind of the, the, 
big master, the puppet master, right? And you just kind of <laughs> are there, right? And and those yeah. guys kind of take over everything from that standpoint. And you know, I from from that standpoint, do you think that's the biggest thing that made last year special? Obviously, talent is one thing, but but I, I mean, talent. We weren't the most talented team potentially even in the conference, but we didn't lose very many baseball games. Is that kind of the core of why you think last year was so special? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, when I look back at last year and and what we did, and I'm still a little bit in shock because like you mentioned, we, yes, we were talented. We had really good pitching and we played really good defense. And those are two things that I think you can't fake, Um, you know, but we had guys buy in off, especially offensively to the system that we put in place. And, um, again, it wasn't always about, we didn't hit many home runs and we didn't, uh, you know, we, we, we won games in some different, in different ways. And, you know, and so I think what I was most proud of is like you mentioned this year, we're going to have all the expectations on us, but last year we were picked to finish fourth in our own conference by the, you know, in the preseason poll. And, uh, we just outperformed anything that anybody outside the walls of our clubhouse thought we could do, you know, and, uh, and, and, it was just really neat. And you were there obviously to just kind of watch the buildup as we went through the season of um, just guys believing in what was happening, you know, and you could just kind of feel this bigger sense of like, man, this is going to be something special. And uh, you know, unfortunately like a lot of seasons that way, it came to a kind of a crashing halt, but it doesn't take away from, you know, what those kids did over the course of six months to uh, of giving of themselves and, and really putting everything um, towards the team and, and, and getting us to where we were. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's a season that certainly, no matter what happens this year, like the 2022 campaign will be one that sticks with me forever. Yeah. I mean, definitely from my standpoint, I feel like we, we took so much away about, and even just not even the fact that 40 and nine or, or whatever it was, I felt like I learned so many lessons about just life with the, that group and how to yeah. handle adversity and, one of the other things that I do want to touch on in, in terms of something that, that you preach and, and something we were able to build into practice every day is competition, right? And one of the most impressive things, and I think, and we can kind of talk about what this guy embodies, but Alex Madera is such an interesting character because you look at him on the field and the first time you watch him play, you're like, God, I would not want to hang out with that guy. And then off the field, he's this great human being who's down to earth and all these things like that and is not that crazy. And the competition side of also the balance between how to teach guys to compete, but also where I felt like we were a competitive group, but sometimes it's hard to get those guys to be as good human beings as they are off the field, where they embody your core values of effort, attitude, toughness, and acceptance, and are just great representations on campus. Usually sometimes when, when guys have a little bit of mother effort on them, as, as I like to say, they're usually a little bit like that off the field too. And, and <laughs> how do you balance that in terms of getting guys to, to compete with each other, embrace competition, and also understand that like that's not at the point of not accepting our core values and, and straying from what they are and what they represent. Yeah, I mean, that's like, I mean, probably was is my biggest weakness is that, you know, I am super competitive and I don't handle, I, I can take that off the field with me too. And you know, I used to get like really super annoyed, um, sort of like, I sound like an old guy when I say this, but like, kind of like by this generation where like we would lose a road game, we lose a road game. And, you know, after the game, they're obviously not happy and we talk quickly and whatever. And by the time we get on the bus, like, you know, guys are laughing, guys seem like it, 
doesn't matter to him. And like I said, that initially when that first would happen would really annoy me, but I've just kind of learned over the years that I think, um, you know, that's probably a positive. These kids can forget quickly and, and kind of move on. And they got a lot of stuff going on in their lives that I think help create that balance for them, um, which is important, but, you know, pushing the, the competition piece, I think is, uh, you know, something that, like you said, you did a great job with our hitters, you know, in practice by keeping charts and keeping rankings and us measuring certain things that allowed the kids to see sort of where they stood amongst the group, you know, and then when we did get out there on the field together, like that's where having a little bit of that chip on your shoulder, I think is okay. And, uh, you know, to a certain point, and like you mentioned about Alex, like Alex to me is the kid that you hate when he's not on your team. And he's the kid that you love when he is on your team. And, um, as much as Alex and I have battled over the course of his four year career, uh, I'd much rather have to rein in somebody from that standpoint than have to push somebody to, to be a little tougher to compete, which is never a concern with him. And, you know, I know you know this and I'll mention it on the podcast, but you know, a four year player in our program and, and our team captain, and, and he's a preseason all American and he just committed to the university of North Carolina at Chapel Hill two days ago, um, where he'll continue his career after, after this spring with us, um, you know, and, and there's no way Alex gets to that point without being Alex, you know, and, and that can be a positive and at times it can hurt him a little bit, but um, he's five, eight, he's not the biggest guy in the world. He's one of the fastest guys I've seen, but um, you know, without that chip on his shoulder, Alex does not end up being what he is today. And so, you know, I think it's a, it's good and bad, but you know, at the same time, like you said, you got to handle it the right way. And, and yes, anytime the umpire says play ball, we want to go out and kick somebody's butt, but, you know, when the game's over, we got to make sure that we're upholding our end of the bargain in terms of, of being who we say we are. Yeah, and it's it's so interesting because every athlete has something that makes them click. And and that used to be my thing when Alex would do something that like you might be like, dude, what are you doing? And just be like, there's something that fuels that kid, right? That might not fuel me. That might not fuel anybody like professional athletes and everything like that. But everybody has that little trigger that, that sometime needs to be flicked. And, and that was his, like he, he played that role of just getting out there and competing and competing at a high level every time he touched the field. And you mentioned the fact that he's, he's committing to UNC Chapel Hill. He's committed to, and he's planning to go there in the fall of this year. And, and obviously that's something super exciting for him, but I also think it's a, it's a testament to, your program as a whole and what you've built. This will be the third straight year where you're sending a guy to a division one program to play at. And obviously COVID opened up a lot of avenues for these guys to take that step. And hopefully a, a red shirt at the division three level is following suit soon. So guys can kind of use that opportunity as is, but what does that mean to you to kind of see these guys take that step and have coaches, you know, from, from literally the, the top of the top reaching out to you to want your players. What, what does that kind of, how does that feel? And, and what's that mean to the player development that you have in your program? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think it just legitimizes the level a little bit. Like I always felt even prior to COVID, you know, that we had division one type players by the time they graduated. And we would use that line in recruiting and, you know, guys would, kind of look at you and be like, yeah, okay. You know, you know, talk about guys like Brian Gillen and Phil Pierfey, Sean Carew, Jake Lloyd, Jordan Droud. I mean, I could, the list goes on and on of guys from 2017, 2018, 2019 that would have had these types of opportunities had, had they been, you know, 
had COVID allowed them for extra years and things like that. You know, so as you talk about the last three years, I think now we have, first of all, I'm super proud of guys like Trevor Matson and Owen Margolis and Alex Madera. And, and all three of those guys were under-recruited players coming out of high school. You know, Arcadia was one of the very few options they had, you know, uh, to, to go play college baseball initially. And, and they all three have turned themselves into division one players, Trevor at Gardner Webb, uh, Margo at Delaware, and now Alex at North Carolina. And so we can, you know, it just, it, it, from our standpoint, it's helpful that we can point to like, Hey, we're not only saying these guys, we have guys that are division one players, but like, here it is, you know, these guys all played four years in our program and, uh, and got opportunities at that level. And so um, I think it's really cool as much as we'd love to have those three guys back um, you know, they're all pursuing their MBA, which, uh, which we don't have at Arcadia. And, and honestly, like when push comes to shove being selfish, yes, we'd want them back. But my, my, my true heart of heart says these guys earn those opportunities to go play and test themselves at the highest level of college baseball. And I couldn't be more happy for all three of them. And, um, you know, Alex, myself and his folks are going to go down to Chapel Hill next weekend and check out the facilities and watch them scrimmage. And like, I just can't wait to see the look on Alex's face when he gets there. And like, it's really cool. Yeah. And it, it, it is great. And I, I remember there were times, obviously Trevor was, you know, already at the division one level. Margo took the leap in the time frame of transitioning from me to, to coach Tice. And then obviously Alex has just recently committed. So I've seen two of them. And obviously I've heard about Trevor and I remember sitting with parents and how much easier that selling point was, is like, we, even with one guy, we have concrete evidence that we develop at that level, right? Like we develop division one athletes. Cause that is the whole idea is like, we, you might not be a division one athlete today. You might not be a division one athlete next month, but we believe that with our player development that we can turn you into that caliber of a guy. And that's what, that's what a lot of kids want. You know, I, I always say that like every kid in the fall of their junior year, they think they're a division one guy in the, in the spring of their junior year, they think they're Michael Juco D2 high D2. And then by the time it comes to fall of their senior year, where they have to really make that decision, that's when they open up to the division three program. So every kid's always imagined themselves playing division one baseball. And it's a matter of now you're able to sit there and say, Hey, listen, like, this is the talent level you're going to play at. We're going to compete against teams like last year, Baldwin Wallace's of the world that had Mm -hmm. just big physical donkeys and North central and all these schools that were ranked in the top 10, top 20, but at the end of the year, and you're also going to get developed to be the best version of the baseball player you want to be and, and being able to sell that to that vision to parents and actually have concrete evidence. It's not just coach speak now, you know, it's like, it's real. And, and it's, it's a testament. I'm sure Alex, I mean, I don't know how the rules are going to line up. He probably isn't the last one, right? That, that group that he came in and and those guys that are talented enough, like there's, there's probably going to be more opportunities for those guys. Now, whether they take it or not, that's them. But, you know, I think it's a huge testament to a lot of division three programs to see guys make that leap. So um, that's awesome. And and obviously super excited for the, the 2023 season and, and to keep track of you guys. Um, obviously, any anytime you want to hop on and talk about anything, we'll definitely check in. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I got to ask you one more question before we let you go. What, sure. What's your biggest preview on the NASCAR season? Who should, be watch- <laughs> who should we be watching out for? What races are you getting out to? Do you have anything planned for that? Oh man, my uh, my not so hidden fandom of NASCAR, I guess, is coming out. But uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I'm predicting Ryan Blaney in 2023 to be the NASCAR Cup Series champion, which is some okay. NASCAR fans might be surprised he didn't win any races last year. But he uh, he was fast most days, and he would have won a couple races had one or two things gone differently. Um, in terms of races, I you know, as long as our weekend series with Misericordia holds up Friday, Saturday, and doesn't get pushed to Sunday, I'll be at Dover, Delaware for the uh, for the Dover race. We'll probably be we'll be at Pocono for the summer race. And then Chelsea and I are kicking around a, a sort of a trip. Last year we did Nashville, um, possibly Sonoma, possibly Watkins Glen. I don't know. You could catch me uh, at any of those spots. So. <laughs> but, yeah, I can't believe I picked a Ford driver to win in 23. But I know. I just have a good feeling. That's crazy. I, I told this story on the podcast one time. And obviously when you, again, when you talk about working with people and spending a lot of time, like we, er, that early spring last year, we spent so much time together. And there was yeah. a point where I felt like we hit like a little bit of a lull where like me, me and you were seeing so much of each other. And I remember I walked in one set Sunday morning, probably two hours practice was already planned. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. And I was like, what's going on in NASCAR? And you just went off for the next two hours. And just, we just talked about it. And I was like, we needed that. Like we, you know, there was so much, there was so much baseball talk. There was so much like going on with like, what's, how's this guy swinging it? How's this going? How are it? Like, I was like, we just need it. We need something to cut this, cut this tension out. And just the NASCAR was always my, my little, like, Definitely. Hey man, like I want to throw that in there. If I, I think he's frustrated. With you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, well, but obviously, uh, it was, it was super awesome podcast. I hope everybody awesome. enjoys, enjoys what we talked yeah. about, especially the Dominican trip and, and what that means. And, and if, yeah. you know, you didn't know much about, about that stuff, I hope you learned something new and, Everybody who listens, make sure you're following Arcadia Baseball this year. I'm sure it's going to be a great year for them. Very talented yeah. group, very special group, and and hopefully, like I said, we'll, we'll be having you back on, maybe pre previewing a regional, super regional, and hopefully, maybe even a, a college World Series. You guys, you like you're heading out to? Your is it still Cedar Rapids here. this year? Uh, it is still Cedar Rapids. One yeah. more year. Yeah. Okay. Well, hopefully, I only have one stipulation. To- if I'm going to come on again, though. What's that? We got to get Galati out of bed and get on the uh, get on the <laughs> podcast with us. So <laughs> I, I, I'm going to leave that to you. I'm not going to say anything. That that was all you. But yeah, I know he's super disappointed. He didn't get on today. Um, so definitely we'll we'll try to get it. Now I'm going to get a message from from Skip down at that Goldie, who's going to be uh, mad yep. that we got you on first. first. He was mad oh, yeah. we didn't get get him on volume one. He was frustrated with Dan and I. So I can't imagine that he sees this. This podcast hit his feed because I know he yep. listens to every episode. He's gonna be mad. So yep. now we're gonna have to make one up for him. But uh, that's what he gets for drinking pumpkin spice coffee. He can go after me. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. We we drink our coffee black from from Thank our you. standpoint. So <laughs> cheers. Um, but the Dominican. This is Dominican coffee, by the way. So oh, there you go. I'll have smuggle to send you some. smuggle beans back. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Uh, that's awesome. Well, yeah. um, to all the listeners out there, making sure you're liking, sharing, subscribing, share with five friends. It helps us grow any way you can. Follow on all social channels. Um, follow the Arcadius baseball pages on all social channels, making sure you're showing your support and keeping track of them. Um, but until next time, we're super excited about We got some more guests coming up, more episodes, obviously a ton of content being pushed out on TikTok. So making sure you're subscribing and following and setting alerts for, for yourself so you can tune into every episode. But until next time, we'll see you guys on the next episode.